So Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in this, the Lord my beloved. I entreat Euodia and entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose name whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Richard. Let's uh, keep our Bibles open there. Uh, Keep sight of the outline if you want, if that is helpful. And let me just lead us in prayer again as we begin. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your Word. I pray now that I would be faithful and clear. I pray that you would give us uh, an attentiveness, an eagerness to listen. Pray supremely that we might see Christ and love him more. In his name we pray. Amen. Just stay here. Just stay here. Three little words that for some reason seem so hard for small children and admittedly my children to comprehend. Just stay here. Perhaps that's a little like where we felt we left off last week in Philippians. Just look down to verse 1 with me again. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Is this like the parent telling the child not to move? Well, if we've been here over the last few weeks, we'll know actually this is much more like the officer telling his troops to hold their ground. Stand firm. They're surrounded by enemy forces. They need to stick together as they work for the advance of the gospel. And so this morning we see the simple truth that standing firm means doing something. I hope we can kind of hold on to that. Standing firm means doing something. In verse 1, Paul's drawing together the last couple of chapters. He's showing how to stay strong, how to keep going, how to, to live as heavenly citizens, as, as gospel soldiers. And to do so, we need to stand firm in the Lord. And it may have slipped our attention, but you see it's in the Lord. In fact, that little phrase, in the Lord, keeps cropping up in the commands that follow. 
So all of what we'll be looking at this morning, all of what follows, isn't the case of try harder or, or do goodianity, as if Christianity is fundamentally about what we do. Hopefully we can remember back to chapter 2 and, and all that Jesus gave up for us. How he put our interests before his own to secure our eternal well-being. So we don't stand firm in our own strength, but in the Lord, resting on his death, securing him. So all that follows is only because of what Jesus has done. Ultimately, he's the one who keeps us standing firm. We stand firm because Jesus has already done it all. He's the one who will return from heaven to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But it means standing firm is perhaps confusingly the flip side of straining forward to what lies ahead, to to pressing on in chapter 3. Here the focus is on, on standing our ground, not getting pushed back or slipping back, staying united. But we mustn't get the wrong idea of Paul. He's not some kind of uh, kind of unthinking, uncaring uh, army general, no harsh school teacher berating his students. It is because of his deep affection for the Philippian Christians. He longs to see them keep going. And the first thing standing firm will involve is corporately sharing Christ's mindset. Again, we might have missed it, but but standing firm, stand firm, verse 1, is a corporate command. It is an an altogether activity. We're all in it. And we stand firm, therefore, in the Lord by thinking the same in the Lord and helping each other. Can you spot that there on the outline? Verses 2 and 3. We think the same in the Lord and help each other. Verse 2. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord... Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Perhaps some bells from way back in Philippians are beginning to ring at this point. At the end of chapter 1, Paul talks about citizenship, about standing firm, labouring side by side, having one mind. And all of these ideas are picked up again. So we're, we're at the end of the central part of the letter. The rubber is hitting the road. And it, again, it's having this united mindset, Christ's mindset, which is so important. It's not hard, is it, to imagine Euodia and Syntyche rocking, rocking up at church one Sunday, perhaps with their, their families in tow. They're, they're a little worn out, trying to get everyone packed and in the car, but they've made it there on time. Then there's an awkward moment where they both see each other and kind of half acknowledge one another, half look the other way. Everyone in church knows about their bust up a while back. They used to be part of the same small group, but now they make sure never to turn up if the other one's going to be there. And there's great excitement. Epaphroditus has come. He steps up. He begins to read the letter from Paul. Everyone's listening in, hearing about Paul's desire for gospel advance, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Uh, The example of uh, Christ putting others' interests above his own for their eternal well-being, counting everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus, keeping going in the Christian life until Jesus comes back. And then Paul drops a bomb. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They're publicly named in front of everyone. 
If I just paused the sermon at this point to, to call out Stephen and Jono, I bet it would get everyone listening in, wouldn't it? It's no minor tiff going on here. Now, falling out is obviously a bad thing in and of itself, but, but the bigger issue is these women are failing to think as those who belong to Jesus and share his mindset. They're not sharing his priorities. They're failing to put one another's interests before their own. They're failing to count everything as loss compared to Christ and his gospel. And the scary thing is these women had been gunning for it in the past. They were co-workers with Paul and, and now they're named and shamed, rightly so, because the danger of disunity is so serious. Now Paul is clear, these women are real Christian sisters, their names are in the book of life, they've even laboured side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. But there's the implication that now they're not because of this disagreement. Disunity detracts from gospel growth. So again, to go back to our Roman shield wall picture, do you remember that? It's like there's a kind of gaping hole now in the shield wall. In come the arrows. But it's even worse, isn't it? It's the soldiers turning in on one another, fighting one another. But just notice, Paul doesn't take sides. He tells them to agree, literally to think the same in the Lord. It's exactly the same language as chapter 2, verse 2. So unity, it's not achieved by papering over the differences or just by sweeping things under the carpet, but by focusing on Christ, on his mindset of getting on with gospel ministry. Unity comes as we focus on the truth about Jesus, not at the expense of truth or ignoring it. And the more we think with the same mind, a mind set on self-sacrificially serving others for their eternal good, the more we'll get on. It's been a huge encouragement to me to hear of people at St. John seeking to do exactly this. Uh, People having a disagreement, but seeking to share the same mind in Jesus, working towards thinking the same in the Lord. You see, counting others as more significant than ourselves means addressing issues we'd rather not, uh, seeking reconciliation by focusing on Christ and his mindset. And we won't achieve unity here at St. John's by anything other than sharing the same mindset in Christ. Uh, Corporately seeking to put one another's interests before our own uh, for one another's eternal good. Just imagine for a moment what that would look like if everyone was resolutely, rigorously putting one another's interests first. If we were all so, so occupied with seeking to make Jesus Christ known, wouldn't it be very hard to get caught up Uh, with disagreements and differences over other issues. And we need to help one another in this. That's why Paul calls on this other person, verse 3, to to help you, Odria and Syntyche. So so just think about it. Who is responsible in the church in Philippi for for reconciliation in the Lord? Paul entreats you, Odria. He pleads with her. He begs her. He entreats Syntyche. And he also asks this true companion to get involved too. This true companion, whoever he may be, is to to help them, to to bring them together. We can't just leave others to sort things out. It is everyone's responsibility. Now, we don't need to wade into every disagreement in church, but we do all have a responsibility to, to help one another pursue reconciliation in the Lord where we can. 
I guess the, uh, the application is fairly obvious, at least I think it is. If there are folk who you are not getting on with at St. John's, not that you're just not best pals, but people you've fallen out with, well, because it is so damaging to the witness of the church, we need to sort it out. If we know of folk who've fallen out, are we helping them by encouraging them to share Christ's mindset, to think his way? See, it's not about getting two people to agree with each other, but getting them to agree with Jesus, uh, to think the same as him. As they share his mind, they'll be more united. That's how we do it, having the same mindset in the Lord, following his example, putting others' interests before our own, getting stuck into labouring for the advance of the gospel. That will bring about true, lasting unity. That is a key way to be united, to stand firm. And also it means, verse 4, rejoicing in the Lord, confident he is near, always rejoicing in the Lord. Confident he is near. Um, have any of us spotted the, the Christmas adverts? I think most of them have been released already this year. Some of us have seen some of them. Uh, maybe you spotted the slogan for boots. Uh, the, the slogan boots have gone for this year. Joy for all. Uh, the tagline for Amazon. Joy is made. I'm not sure all of their workers would agree entirely. Uh, Tesco goes so far as to announce there is a national joy shortage and they, Tesco, stand for joy. But it's hard not to assume joy is basically tied up with eating lots of food and ideally not paying too much for it. Uh, People realise joy is something we want, but I'm not sure they know how to find it. Is it merely getting more stuff or just the warm, cosy feeling you crave at Christmas. If we've been here throughout our series in Philippians, we'll know joy is a pretty big deal in the letter for Paul. It comes twice in this verse, verse 4. Paul's already told the Philippians they are his joy, 4 verse 1. In this letter, he prays with joy. He rejoices Christ is proclaimed. He remains uh, for the Philippians' joy in the faith. He asks them to complete his joy. He rejoices with them. He sends Epaphroditus so the Philippians might rejoice. On more than one occasion, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. And then we look at our own lives and we might feel a little disconnect. I mean, Paul goes on and on about joy. And we seem to feel precious little of it, or it comes and then it goes. But just look at verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, Can Paul really mean always? How can we rejoice when we're just told we've got a life-threatening illness? Can I really rejoice when I've just lost my job or I hate my work? How can we rejoice when everything seems to be going down the pan? Well, we need to remember the object or reason for our rejoicing. We're to rejoice in the Lord, not in our circumstances, not in how we feel, not in how we're treated. And don't we always have reason to rejoice in the Lord? Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
You see, rejoicing is something we can choose to do. It's why Paul can command it. It's not that we have to summon up a feeling, but rather we deliberately choose to delight in Christ. We deliberately choose to delight in Christ. We we make the conscious decision to consider him of surpassing worth. So I'm stuck in the car in, in traffic. I'm exhausted after a week of business travel. I get the news my child has some rare genetic disease. A parent dies. I fail an exam again. Whatever it may be, we may not be happy, but we can rejoice. In fact, we must rejoice in the Lord. Just remember, Paul's not riding this, sipping a latte in Starbucks. He is riding from prison, facing a possible death penalty. And yet he rejoices. When he was in the the jail in Philippi, having been beaten and flogged. Do you remember, what did he do all night? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And I wonder if Paul has Luke chapter 10 in mind. And Jesus says to the 72 disciples who've been sent out, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And Paul's just mentioned in Philippians 4, those whose names are in the book of life, verse 3, so surely rejoicing in the Lord is right. We can always rejoice in the Lord if our names are written in heaven, can't we? Here's what one writer says. Even in our tears, we may rejoice, we will rejoice, we must rejoice, for we rejoice in the Lord. He does not change, and that is why we shall rejoice in the Lord always. And no one who does this can be proud or prayerless, bitter or a backbiter. A sure way to battle sin, to keep going in the Christian life, to stand firm, is to rejoice in the Lord always. And rejoicing in the Lord, it it will always spill over. It can't be contained. It'll be evident in how we live our life. As next Paul says, make known your gentleness to all. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, Rejoicing leads to reasonableness. Reasonable. I don't think it means wetness. Paul can call the false teachers dogs and evildoers. Our Lord Jesus was certainly not wet. It is a deliberate, self-effacing kindness. It's the idea of being considerate, of putting others first. It's someone with control and power, not insisting on their own rights. They're quick to yield, not assert. It is being like Jesus. So am I known as being reasonable, gentle? like Jesus and we're to live like this because the Lord is at hand Uh, because the Lord is near both Jesus' return which could come at any any moment chapter 3 verse 20 and his immediate presence in our lives chapter 3 verse 10 because he is near we are to be reasonable doesn't it make all the sense in the world if Jesus lives in us by his spirit He is near. If he could come back at any moment, he is near. That we want to be found being reasonable. Also, we know we have a a definite, glorious future. We we don't need to win every argument now because in Christ we are victorious already, forever. I wonder deep down what we want to be known for. 
as a great preacher, a warm, loving pastor, as a success in the city, as a mum who has it all together, as someone who is beautiful and witty and charming. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And that reminder that that the reassurance the Lord is at hand, that he is near, is is wedged in between two commands. It, It seeps out into both. The fact Jesus is with us and will soon return motivates us to be reasonable. And it also helps us not be anxious about anything, or rather be anxious about nothing. That's really how Paul puts it. Be anxious about nothing. There was a, a film out a few years back called A Fantastic Fear of Everything. I've not watched it. I have no idea what it's like. But it, it sums up, doesn't it, how a lot of people live, I think, or at least what they see in the news every day. We can watch the news, read it online, and feel a little bit like Piglet in Winnie the Pooh. I mean, how can we not be anxious? Our health, the future, wars, terrorists, finances, our family, even bacon. Now we need to worry about bacon. <laughs> And with round-the-clock, 24-hour news, updates on our phones, friends and family, just a phone call away, how can we not be anxious? And just look about how absolute Paul is. Do not be anxious, verse 6, about anything. I think when I've taught this in the past, I've thought prayer was the antidote to anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and so on. But looking at these verses again, I think it's better to say it is an antidote. You see, the more I've looked at this, the more I've seen it's all flowing from verse 1. This this passage, it is a cascade of commands, if you will, as each one flows out and spills into the next. Stand firm in the Lord by thinking the same in the Lord. So help them by encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord, which will be evident in your reasonableness being known to all, because the Lord is at hand. Therefore, don't be anxious about anything, which is expressed in praying, thanking God, asking God. So actually our anxiety is dealt with by much more than just prayer, although we'll see it is dealt with by prayer in a moment. Uh, We remember the Lord is at hand. We rejoice in the Lord daily. And of course we are also to pray. In all things make known your prayers to God. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As someone once noted, I've yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. The reason we shouldn't be anxious about anything is because we can bring to God our requests about everything. Can you see that? We do it all with thankfulness, or again, as someone put it, uh, thankfulness being worry's kryptonite. Ingratitude seems to be one of the hallmarks of our culture, but not so for the Christian. A grateful heart is a satisfied heart. So just think with me about the the upcoming week. I don't know what you've got in store. Uh, Think about all those things we might be tempted to worry about. And let us resolve in God's strength to pray about them. Uh, We can pray on our own, but we also have the the wonderful privilege each month of gathering at our, our prayer meeting to pray with and for one another. 
And prayer, whether or not our requests are answered in the way we want, is the vehicle and expression of the peace of God. In the Bible, peace from God is an objective reality based on the cross. Hostilities have ceased. So it's not that our prayers give us peace with God. No, it is what Jesus has done. We'll be reminded as we share the Lord's Supper together later on. So it's like, I think, putting an elderly relative on a plane for the first time. Maybe you've done that before. And uh, great Auntie Ethel, she's not very confident about the whole flying sardine can thing. And so you meet her at the airport on her return, and you, you ask her, well, did the plane hold you up okay? And she rather reluctantly replies, well, yes. But then quickly replies, but I never did put my full weight down on it. God's peace is our reconciliation. It gets us from being outside God's kingdom into it. God's peace also sustains us. But prayer is how we rest all our weight on God. And then we won't be plagued with anxiety. We can even enjoy the flight. It is how we stand firm. The picture Paul uses there, it's not a plane, surprisingly, but a, a city being guarded. It's like an army have just won the battle and secured peace for the city. And then they come and they stand guard on the city wall. Once the peace treaty is signed, hostilities are over. The people are happy, they rejoice. Now those feelings would make no difference. They'd be of no use if they were still at war. But they are grounded in the objective reality of peace. So imagine that this city is guarded by a troop of soldiers. They're on sentry duty on on the walls day and night. They guard the city, they keep it safe. That is a little like what Paul is saying here. We are the city and when we come to God through Jesus and his death, it is like the war is over. We are at peace with God. It is a peace which is so mind-blowing, we can't get our heads around it. It surpasses all understanding. That God through his son might forgive sinners through his death in our place. And God's peace surrounds us like an army guarding our inner person, our our hearts, the whole of who we are on the inside, our, our minds, our thoughts in Christ Jesus. If we are a Christian, we are in intimate, permanent union with Jesus. And to get to us, anxiety is, it kind of has to go through Jesus as it were. We're protected against any attack, any temptation to worry, to put myself before others. And we can thankfully turn to God in prayer. Prayer is how we rest in the security of God and how we actively know it. So all of this is actually, I think, an an expansion and an unpacking of how we are kept safe by rejoicing in the Lord. Verses 4 to 7, they hold together. They begin by rejoicing in the Lord and they end by being guarded in Christ Jesus. Just the same as the beginning of chapter 3, rejoicing the Lord, being kept safe. This, I think, has a little more meat on the bones, though. So sometimes we might hear folks say, well, I had a real peace about it, or I didn't feel peace about it. But our reading today isn't saying the peace of God is a warm, fuzzy feeling God promises to give us, especially when making tough decisions. God often calls on his people in his word to do things about which we have no subjective, warm, fuzzy feeling, such as sharing the gospel with a neighbour or or denying ourselves a, a sinful pleasure. Our emotions must always be the servant, not the master. 
Some of us may have heard of the, the poet and hymn writer William Cooper. He was a friend of John Newton's and battled severe depression, even attempting suicide. And yet he knew this peace of God. He knew that God was in control, even over the worst bits of life. He knew he could pray. He knew he could always rejoice in the Lord. So just uh, listen to a bit from one of his hymns. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God is in control, and so we don't need to be anxious. We can, we must pray to him. Praying, and so being guarded by God's peace. It's another way, isn't it, to stand firm. And then finally, we stand firm by considering and copying examples of the Lord. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Instead of our minds being filled with worries, anxieties, here is what we're to fill our minds with. And it's not a case of emptying our minds like Eastern mysticism or Western mindfulness, but filling our minds. We're to fill our minds with what is beautiful in God's sight and what will endure into the new creation. And we need to know what it is. We need to know, don't we, what God considers true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. And he tells us in his words, supremely, it is seen in Jesus. You see, verse 8 is tightly tied to verse 9. We can't just import into verse 8 whatever we think matches these qualities. They're qualities, verse 9, Paul displays. It's these things. And we need to remember it is answering the prayer of chapter 1, verse 10. Paul wants their love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so they might approve what is excellent. And what is excellent is living out Christ's mindset. Isn't it some of the things we were hearing about in the interview earlier, wanting to, to know Jesus, to make him known more and more. Putting our interests below others for the sake of their eternal good. Self-sacrificially serving to see the gospel advance. It's been a challenge to me to think, what am I putting in my mind? What am I dwelling on? What am I considering? Would what we watch on TV or what we browse on the internet fit with verse 8? Actually, how many films, how many magazines are almost the exact opposite of these things? So I know people who will try and put this into practice by listening to sermons on the train to work or reading a Christian book on holiday. It'll mean at the very least, I think, regularly reading God's word to, to fill our minds with these things, to, to know Christ's mindset better. 
And maybe that's something we're yet to get into, regularly at reading God's word, regularly at praying. If you're not yet in that habit, do chat to a Christian friend, maybe grab some Bible reading notes and find a slot each day over breakfast, on the train, when the baby's having a nap, first thing in the morning, whenever it is, and resolve to present our requests to God with thanksgiving and also to think about these excellent things to consider Christ. Focusing on and dwelling on excellent and praiseworthy things was something Paul pursues as he presses on to know Jesus. And it's why he can call on the Philippians to follow his example in verse 9. And just look at the encouragement we get at the end. God's salvation peace keeps us safe in verse 7, and now his own presence remains with us, according to verse 9. Not just the peace of God, but the God of peace himself will be with you. When we wake up tomorrow morning, my hope and prayer is we remember at least something from today's sermon of how to stand firm. Because we need to get this into our our DNA so that when the storms hit, when calamity comes, we are standing firm, not just on our own, but corporately together. And what is crucial is we remember ultimately it is about standing firm in the Lord. It is all about Jesus. We do all of this in him. Standing firm in him, thinking the same in him, rejoicing in him, God's peace guarding us in him, dwelling on, filling our minds with him. What a glorious, wonderful saviour we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us resolve in his strength to become more like him and more fit for his purpose. Let's pray together. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Father God, we thank you once again for this reminder to rejoice in the Lord, to stand firm in the Lord. Help us not only to seek to put these things into practice in our lives, but to help one another. Thank you that you have called us not just as individuals, but as a church family uh, to stand firm. Where we are reluctant to do these things, please expose our sin. While we are struggling to do these things, please strengthen us by your spirit and help us more and more fix our eyes on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.